Here we are, March the 8th, 2015, lecture discussion number 189 on the book of Romans. And well, now, uh, many things have occurred since last Sunday, uh, as has been the case for quite a while now. I have It's mail time. I have a lot of mail. And uh, folks, you uh, are doing wonderful jobs writing me, and there are a lot of questions. You guys out on the Internet, I'm talking to you now, and I'm working on your letters, one at a time. Takes me a long time, as you know, but I'm knocking them out little by little, and I will get to yours. Uh, I am setting some aside because I want to read them. They fit into the topics that we have. I got this letter. Uh, I won't read all of them, all the letters, uh, because there some of them are have information that you won't be interested in. But this is from Norman in Tennessee, and I thought it was particularly appropriate and interesting to read today. Let me uh, give it to you here. Pastor Steve, I have really enjoyed your sermons on Romans. I download them and listen to them as I drive to work in other places. I know you're already feeling sorry for him, aren't you? But don't. I usually listen to about 10 or 15 per week. Norman, you can't hear the groaning or see their faces. You can't. Since I don't wear headphones in the car... Everyone traveling with me listens to you also. He forces them. That's illegal in some states, as you know. I'm not sure my nine-year-old understands or listens to everything you say, but one other passenger sure does, the dog that travels with me. He sits up and his ears perk up every time I put you on. I'm not sure if he was weird before he started listening to you or became weird after listening to you. Now, that's a a joke uh, that is long old here. Your teaching on the physical and spiritual realities have really helped me to be able to explain these concepts to my children in terms and in pictures they can understand. In fact, I drew a picture of void one and void zero and explained how time fit in and how small the physical reality is uh, to the spiritual reality, where we fit in and where God fits in. I know, I know, he is omnipresent and doesn't fit in, in anywhere, but I had to make some allowances because they are only nine and twelve years old. So I, you can imagine, Dad, talking about quantum physics concepts with a nine and twelve year old. Okay, it gave me an idea, but they really didn't seem to get it and started asking many questions, which of course I didn't answer. I was very encouraged. I know I have a long way to go with them, but with Jesus God, anything is possible. As for my idea, I was thinking maybe a Pastor Steve coloring book for kids. Yes, what a great idea, huh? He goes on to give us ways, you know, he knows that we could use the, uh, the extra financial assistance, right? Pastor Steve's coloring books for kids, coloring books for kids. Might be a good idea, he says, for the webpage store. The list of great coloring pictures for kids is endless. You could start with a bloody stump in the mail. (laughs) And he says, one of my all-time favorite messages, by the way, and continue with Elijah and rainbows. Kids love rainbows. Does God sacrifice children? On second thought, maybe, maybe not so much. Wave particle dualism. Satan's checkerboard. Cinco de Stevo Day, maybe a pinata filled with Diet Cokes, and of course the continuity of germplasm. Maybe hard to draw, better let Supper Dave draw that one. But all kidding aside, thank you and the Cliffside crew for putting messages on the Internet where people like me can have the chance to listen and learn and grow in the knowledge of the most amazing book ever written. There is none other like it. And so I just wanted you to know that Norm is suggesting that we have Pastor Steve's Coloring books for kids. I'm sure we would sell, well, none, actually. We would sell them. But it would still be fun to have them, don't you think? Uh, Here's another one. This is from uh, uh, Bad Bob. Uh, Bad Bob and Shirley. I I think he's in San Diego. I, I don't remember for sure. Just a few words, uh, uh, salutations, Pastor Steve, just a few words from the backside of the desert that may or may not be of any significance to life forms occupying the frozen, chosen uh, tundra of the planet, Alaska. Send my warm greetings and love to all cliffhangers, especially to Bill the Cow and Supper Day. That's why I'm reading this, by the way, because I get a whole bunch of these, just in case you think that I don't. 
Thanks to Big Ben for his timely updates, lecture notes, and pop editing of sermon audio titles and storylines. Special kudos to Kurt. Uh, um, and go to go to Kurt and to the cow guy, a faithful soldier who keeps me posted on new uh, releases of Steve Live from the Totem House. So I, I wanted to let you know. And he talked about the, the, a few other things. But I, uh, stay hungry, my friend, and take the pizza next time. We allowed a pizza to get out of here, and he was he was letting us know. But if you'd like to read the rest of those, they're they're up here after the sermon. So, okay, where are we? Um, we also had this week the Prime Minister of Israel speaking to the U.S. Congress, which is in the category of the sign of the restoration of Israel. Uh, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time here today on this. Not a lot, because I've got other places to go. But it's important to know this sign of Israel. I keep beating it in and beating it in. The reason it's so important to us is that it's happened in our lifetime. And it's happening now in our lifetime. We had the Prime Minister of Israel coming to warn us of what? What was his warning? The imminent destruction of the nation of Israel. Well, there's not even been a nation of Israel. For thousands of years, now there is one, and the sign of the destruction of the nation, of the attempt to destroy this nation, is in, in front of you. The nation of Israel is a sign. It's a great proof of something. It's evidence of truth. And actually, it's evidences of many truths. It's multifaceted. As an example, I'm going to give you uh, one that is largely unknown, if not completely unknown. Uh, and I thought about how can I do this justice? But I'll just kind of fire away and deal with it later uh, in the coming weeks. The sign, if you understood the sign of Israel, it will do something for you. The sign that is the nation of Israel proves that all evolutionary axioms are untrue. They're all a lie. If you understand just this, if all you do is study Israel, you will understand immediately that all evolutionary precepts are a lie. To phrase it another way, all that is necessary to disprove evolution is a depth of understanding on the biblical sign that is the nation of Israel. You know what's going on in Israel. You understand what the Bible says about the nation of Israel. You will never believe evolutionary precepts. It's impossible. If, if the sign of Israel is true and you have a nation of Israel in front of you, it's actually physically there. Some of you have visited it. It has been restored. And it is what? The center of the world right now, isn't it? The possibility that we explode into worldwide war is because of the nation of Israel. And if you understand the sign that is in the Bible, the Bible says to you that it is proof. One thing that it does is disprove. Let me say it again. It disproves that evolution has any possibility of being true. And you would think that would motivate people to put energy into studying the sign of Israel. I have many, many books on the sign of Israel. Um, but... I, I'm going to tell you, it's rare to find somebody who has studied that sign. People always ask me, God, why doesn't God give me a sign? Well, he did. Here's your sign. How much time have you put into looking at it? Not much. Is is very true. That's the way it is. It's Like I said, it's rare to find somebody who's put any time at all. The ones that do are especially wise. I've never met somebody that has devoted significant amounts of time to the study of the sign that is now the nation of Israel before you who has any difficulty in his life. There's wisdom here that you cannot begin to comprehend. So I, I here it is in front of us. It's in the news every single day. And, and I'm going to endeavor to provide some remedy. Albeit, it'll be insubstantial. Okay, what else has happened in, in our one week here that we've, our interim week here? Well, this happened. My new best friend, who shall remain nameless, his initials are Bill O'Reilly. Uh, he might have said something unprecedented this week. 
He doesn't know he's my new best friend, by the way. Uh, he has no idea that we have a relationship because we don't. Only I, it's a one, one-sided one. I'm the one side. But Mr. O'Reilly said this, and millions and millions of people listen to him. And I'm not saying they shouldn't. I'm just saying that you need to know sometimes uh, he purports to be theologically sound. And I've yet to see a sentence from him where he is theologically sound. So, let me just say that. But he said this, and many people have asked me about it. So, I thought, well, I'll go ahead and put it on the board here. He said, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself was. Jesus Christ himself was destroyed. You can start to boo at any time here now. Jesus Christ himself was destroyed by evil. Jesus Christ himself was destroyed by evil people. Okay, that went out to millions and millions of people. And he was adamant, he was certain that he was right. Jesus Christ himself was destroyed by evil people. I know, where do I start here? I began considering how long it would take me to address the illiteracy that is in uh, that eight-word sentence. And I thought, do I have time today? And I really don't. That is a bucket full of biblical illiteracy. And that's a big bucket. I don't know where to even, what to do. But let me just take a real quick run at it. I can replace Jesus Christ himself with infinite, omnipotent creator God. So that's what I'm going to do. Infinite, omnipotent creator God was, no, no, the name of the infinite, omnipotent creator God is the I Am. That's his name. Was, was, no, not was. He is, as you know, the creator of time. Jesus Christ is the creator. He is the creator of time, and therefore, he is not subject to time. You cannot be subject to time when you're the creator of time. You can go inside of time, partially, if you will, but you're omnipresent and you're infinite. So you can't even fit inside of time. You have to understand all those things. So sentences that contain the phrase, Jesus Christ himself was, are seldom, very seldom true statements. And this one isn't close to true. There's nothing true about anything in that statement. Let me think. Okay. And so to utter statements like Jesus Christ was, anytime you find a, uh, anytime you have a phrase, Jesus Christ was, recognize that it's extremely difficult for that statement to not be specious. It requires careful, precise, thoughtful considerations and conditions and admonitions and identification of the perspective of the observer for a statement to have Jesus Christ was in it. So be very careful when you see those. It's not a task for amateurs um, that are media personalities. Media personalities of any ilk should stay away from saying anything theological. Please. How about anything political? We should stop that too. How about, let's just stop talking if you're in the media or in Hollywood. Let's just stop. Stop it. It's, it's. Anyway. Amateurs and media personality is a redundancy, I know. Don't write me. However, it's also very seldom that an absolute lack of qualification detours celebrities. 
I, I think it, it actually seems to spur them on. Okay, where was I? Anyway, infinite, omnipotent God, somehow they think, or this gentleman thinks, was destroyed, which on its face is preposterous, it's infeasible, it's contradictory. How can infinite, omnipotent God be destroyed? It can't. But uh, that's no matter uh, to the learned theologian that is our Mr. O'Reilly, my new friend. He continues, uh, and he careens uh, speedily towards his apocalyptic conclusion, a great fireball of debris and havoc. Infinite, timeless, omnipotent creator God was destroyed by what? By evil. Evil destroyed God. Okay. Let's digest that. God has omnibenevolence. If you've not heard that term before, that means that he is pure, absolute goodness. He has no evil in him. It is impossible for him to have any evil. If you ever put evil in Christ, who is God, Jesus God, if you ever put assign, you can't put it, but if you ever intellectually assign evil into Christ, you have come to a impasse because omnibenevolence does not allow the existence of evil to be in its person. But in the mind of Mr. O'Reilly, pure goodness is destroyed by evil. So he's decided that evil has triumphed. He has decided that evil has extinguished God. Mr. O'Reilly says the fight has ended and evil has won. The Lord God Almighty destroyed by evil. Now, I know the mindset of people that make statements like this. They think that's true. They think that Christ was defeated by evil temporarily. So if there's a period of time, I want to, what's the obvious question now? Well, I'll just give you the, the hypothesis. There's a period of time, I'll make it that wide, there's a period of time. Well, how many seconds would you like it to be? Well, let's call it an hour. For one hour, 60 minutes, that's a television show that also has brilliant theologians, I kid, on it. But let's say that Mr. O'Reilly will give him 60 minutes. Christ, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, infinite, omnipresent, omniscient God was destroyed by evil for 60 minutes. It was only temporary. Well, you see the problem. Evil has won 60 minutes. So, we're really only talking about time now. How long? If evil can defeat God, for what? You're saying that evil can defeat God for a minute? Then what have you said? You've said that God is not omnipotent. And you, if you take his omnipotence away from him, you've taken away his omnipresence and his uh, omniscience and his omnibenevolence. And now no one is saved. I wouldn't expect people to understand that. But you can't, uh, t- uh, temporarily is horribly wrong. It's, it's heretical, it's blasphemous, and there, what you've done is you've got evil triumphing. There's your new message of hope. But as you know, it gets immediately more so uh, indefensible. It is not merely Jesus Christ, omnipotent, omnibenevolent God uh, himself was destroyed by evil, but we got to go to the bitter end, don't we? What kind of evil specifically? Let's get more specific. Evil people destroyed Jesus Christ. I, I, I really don't, you know, I'm, I'm watching it on tel- I watched it. Tells me I need to get a life. And I'm watching it. I go, I, I just, what do I say? Here's a man that said it with so much passion, he obviously believes he's right. Never even considered what he said. So let's evaluate it again. Thus, the, the tiny specks, the created tiny specks. How big are you compared to infinity? Well, let me... Make a mark. I'll represent you. Uh, the board will represent infinity, and um, and this mark that I'm about to make will represent you, you. Okay, there it is. Did you see it? I didn't touch the board. That's why you didn't see it. There is no mark. 
the tiny speck, and that represents all of creation compared to infinity. That destroyed Christ. The tiny specks rose up and overcame their infinite creator. And let's just logically continue that thought process. I, I know, thought process and what's being discussed here should not belong in the same sentence. By logical progression, instantly, as soon as the people destroyed Christ, what happened to the people? Died isn't the word. That's not fast enough. But thanks for at least putting it on the table. All of reality, you see, by logical extension, the destruction of creator God eliminates all creation, all created things. All reality is within the mind of God. There is no reality apart from God. This is uh, observation and, and perception, right? George Berkeley. There's no reality apart from God. See the definitions of omnipresence and omniscience. Thus, the created could not ever even know that they destroyed Jesus Christ. You can't know that you destroyed God. It's impossible for you to know it. So the very fact that Bill O'Reilly said something that Christ was destroyed, his very saying it disproves what he said. Does that make sense? He couldn't say it if it was true. I'm ranting again, aren't I? Okay. Slow down, get some medicine. Mr. O'Reilly did not consider the certainty that would have been caused by the destruction if if I concede the premise, if I concede the, the hypothesis that Christ was destroyed, even though it's ridiculous, but let's go ahead and concede it, then Bill O'Reilly could never exist. And he could never have said what he said. The very statement that he makes disproves his own thesis. So I use Bill O'Reilly's thought process with great artistic license. No one with any concern for the accuracy of the English language would associate thought process with Jesus Christ himself was destroyed by evil people. That is not a thought process. I'm not sure what it is, but it is not thinking. And that reminded me as I was listening to him of a truly wise saying that I will put on the board. I will get rid of that. But by the way, how common is that kind of thinking at, at Ishtar that's coming up? We've got about a month, and then we're going to be slaughtered with this kind of thinking. It's going to be everywhere. I promise you, go visit a church. You, you know, you're welcome to go to other churches around here because I want them to see what you're like. It's just kind of part of my maniacal plan. But if you do, and there, I don't know if you'll have flying Santa Clauses on Ishtar, do you? Do you? No, I think that's Christmas. But anyway, go. You're going to find that what I'm telling you, what Mr. O'Reilly expressed, is quite common and, in fact, believed by the Christian community. It's really sad. Here's my truly wise response. It ain't easy, but it's simple. It ain't easy, but it's simple. We know that the Bible is the inerrant, revealed mind of God. It is astonishingly entangled. That's why I spend so much time on the physics and the principles of entanglement. It's interconnected. When one part moves, another part moves in concert. It's astonishingly complex, your Bible is. Portraits of Christ are hidden on every page of the Old Testament. Every single page. If you don't find it, you're not looking. All you have to do is look, right? God's plan of salvation is also everywhere in his Bible. And he defends it at all times. He demonstrates in on every page his love, his mercy, his holiness, his justice, his character. He gives it to us throughout his word. And there are very deep mysteries in his Bible. And so it ain't easy. 
I got that. Give a little grace to Mr. O'Reilly. And then easy. I'm not surprised that he got it completely, totally wrong. Lots of people do. The difference is, is he doesn't think so. Anyway, it ain't easy, but it's simple. All you gotta do is start right. If you start correctly, you won't write sentences like Jesus Christ was destroyed by evil people. You'll never write them. I'm going to stand here and tell you that I don't think I've ever written that in my life. And I wondered why. Because I can look back when I was a small kid and somebody told me the first singular truth. And I believed it. Jesus Christ is never not God. You've heard me say it thousands of times. He's never, ever not God. It's a singular truth. If you start there, you're going to negotiate, navigate the Bible with clarity. And that isn't easy to understand. It is the mystery of godliness, of the first, of the 11 mysteries that we're going to be held accountable for, that God gives us. This is the most, this is number one. It's the one that you, that you should spend all your time on, frankly. If you don't, the rest of them you'll have no hope for. So my point is, is write and say and think nothing that conflicts with the first magnificent truth of Christ. He's never not God. There's a lot of young families in this church now. We're growing the church the old-fashioned way. Start out, get your kids down and say, Hey, Jesus Christ is never not God. Do not think anything that contradicts with that magnificent truth. If you are, you're careening. Okay. What's next? More fun stuff before we return to the topic. Things that are coming up a lot. In the post game last week, that's, that's before I get to the buffet table. Uh, a really wonderful topic came up. And the, the post game discussion was on the blood of Christ and the subsequent implications that arise with respect to universalism or universalistic dogma. And I thought I was so pleased to listen to them talk, four or five guys back there. I was so, I just thought it was fantastic. And I thought the rest of you, especially all you folks on the Internet, would find it interesting. And you complain that you're not part of the post-game or the pre-game here. And we're working to correct that, but um, it takes technical expertise that we haven't yet been able to uh, assimilate. So uh, be patient. But let me rephrase it a little bit so you understand the topic. Universalism is the belief system that a loving God would not and does not hold anyone accountable. All dogs go to heaven. Does that make sense? What they say is that all people go to heaven, irrespective. There is no justice, the universalist says. There is no condemnation. All there is is mercy. The universalist will insist that God cannot be both merciful and holy. Essentially, they're, they're, they're saying that there is no solution to sin, and, and therefore, what? Evil prevails. There is a highly, let me interrupt here for you folks on the internet. There is a highly qualified child care professional down there, young lady, that will be very happy to have your children. She goes outside and plays in the gravel with them. She didn't even hear me, did she? All my best stuff is just too slow. Okay, the universalist, he says that God will save everybody. So there's no problems. Do what you want to do with no cares. Evil cannot be defeated, and therefore God must save everyone. You'll put that together as you study the philosophy of it all. Uh, just trust me on that. Now, we've gone over this thousands of times, but last Sunday, as I said, there was a group back there, Bill the Cow, was noting that uh, temporal universalism is getting... Popularity. What I mean by that, 
Whenever you see the word temporal, what subject are you in now? You're in the subject of the existence of time. But temporal, universalistic philosophy. Temporal universalism is gaining popularity. And um, in other words, those who reject God and choose unbelief and the evil that flows from that unbelief, those people will never have a punishment. I'm sorry, they will have a punishment that is temporal, that is proportional to the accumulation level of their sin and the degree of their sinfulness, if that makes any sense. In other words, how many sins did they have and how bad were they? That is the system in place for them. So I have two groups of people, those who believe in Christ and the blood of Christ, and they are saved immediately and completely, and then the rest are in a temporal state of punishment. But eventually they will come out of that temporal state, and what will happen to them? They will be accepted into the heavenly kingdom. That is temporal or temporary uh, universalism. That is absolutely Mormon teaching. It's also got a grain of Catholicism in it. Purgatory, right? So much of our community thinks it's absolutely logical. So let's look at the logic. The logic is that the worst of humanity would languish in torment for much longer than the majority would. Wouldn't you agree if you have this position? So if I have somebody that is horribly bad, he has a longer period of torment than somebody who was just a little bad. I have degrees of bad. (laughs) You see where I'm going immediately. Who decides who's bad? On the basis of what? If it's between me and Supper Dave, obviously I'm going to have a shorter term of torment than him. I mean, that's pretty clear. How many would vote for me? Okay, let's let the record show none. <laughs> Actually, Supper Dave did. <laughs> so that just proves my hypothesis incorrect. The point is, it's, it's, it's ridiculous, is it not? Uh, can you see that the parsing that is necessary now to make this system functional? Well, God is omniscient. He can do it. Absolutely, he can. Would he do it? So there's a sliding scale based in this position. Above average evil, average evil, or below average evil, you've got categories. How many categories do you have? Well, you have a category for each individual person, do you not? How many individual people are in this position? If this is you, if you're the universalist, trillions, at least many billions, huh? I like to use trillions. It annoys the evolutionists. So I got not so bad. I got bad, and I got really bad. <coughs> I'm going to just say there's three, and that, by the way, is not dissimilar, is it, uh, to the uh, current humanistic judicial system that we have? And so you could see that they think that the man system has merit over the God system. Because they're copying our current judicial method. The universalist begins with the assumption that God's methods are what? Inadequate. Unjust. God has failed to anticipate. There's flaws in God's justice system. The universalist is about correcting those flaws, making the necessary fine-tuning adjustments. He's got to compensate for God's mistakes. If you accept temporal universalism, you are immediately saying that God is careless, unreflective. Temporal universalism thinks that those who choose condemnation will eventually be released from that condemnation. It is just a matter of do this time see how we're right back to where we were so what's the obvious question again how long is long how much time before you are released and if you are released what are your what's your status now I can tell you what your status isn't if you're released from condemnation you are no longer 
in condemnation. You're no longer condemned. What are you now? What's your new status? You have a new identification tag. What does it say? It says, saved, doesn't it? And it's just a matter of time. All I have to do is wait, right? So, again, temporal universalism thinks that those who choose to be condemned. Notice how I'm wording that. That is not worded by accident. I'm intentionally wording it that way because that is how it is. Those who choose condemnation will be released after a period of time, irrespective of their current state of evil. It doesn't matter how evil they are. Isn't that like our justice system now? When you serve your time, you are released from imprisonment. That's what we call in this, in this country, in all, most countries, justice. Does God define justice that way? You have to decide. Universalist says that he should. Again, if he remains evil, it doesn't matter. All that matters is how much time he has spent in the punishment condition. Time served is the only consideration. Their existent hatred of God as, as they're being released is of no significance. And notice the obvious consequences of this concept. What do I have now? I have two co-equal plans of salvation. I have the blood of Christ, do I not? And what is the alternative for the universalist to the blood of Christ? Time. So there's my two. Um, blood v. time. I have two systems, co-equal plans of salvation. And those who are covered by the blood of Christ are those who have waited for time to pass. Universalist is nothing if he is not boldly stating that the blood of Christ is therefore what? Irrelevant. Salvation can be attained by what? Time. Just got to wait for it. So is there any accountability? So when someone proposes a time-based salvation, a temporary condemnation, it is in actuality an attack on the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus Christ. They have rendered the blood of Christ completely valueless. All of these universalistic universalism concepts are attacks on the sufficiency of the plan of salvation of the blood of Christ. All of them, all of their proposals at their core, their undisguised attempt at polluting the truth of salvation. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get you to say this. God's system is not fair. He should let everybody who is bad, some are not as bad as others. Is that correct? I have degrees of bad. Some are really, really bad. Okay, let's set those people aside because we know they're really But i got some other people that are not so bad. They should have a temporal condemnation. That's what they say. That's what they teach. They have told you that the blood of Christ is what? Meaningless. Everyone would choose time. Why would everyone do it? Because we're all sinful, crooked people. <laughs> The, uh, Marie asked, how did they know they haven't? We, how do you, we know they haven't? Well, I don't know the hearts of men. But by the way, this polluting of the truth of the blood of Christ, this time concept, this universalism, is not done on an accidental um, happenstance. It, it is premeditated. It is absolutely thought through. The universalist knows what he's doing when he gets you to agree that God is unfair in how he condemns people. And so it is intentionally a trap. But Jesus Christ will prevail. He will completely prevail over the evil acts of evil people. In spite of what some will say. By the way, some will say, just for that really fast, I'm getting a lot of 
Some will say, a lot of mail on this lately. They asked me about James 2. I said this recently. The solution to James 2 is identify who the sum is and who, what is he saying. When you read James 2, just quickly I'll insert it again. Please try to figure out who it is that is saying what and why is he saying it. And that will help you solve what you might think is a, a contradiction between James and Romans. Okay, where were we last week? Time to start the sermon. People always tell me, can you shorten the sermon? I just am. See how it works? It's really part of my system here. We were, uh, we were in Proverbs 26, uh, 11 through 16. That's where we are. And also Proverbs 15, uh, 19. So if you want to, I think those are in your bulletin. We were also kicking around John 15, 13. You might not have known that. But that's where we are, and that makes us also get to John 13, 13. So that's where we currently are negotiating. Remember I said last week, Greater love hath no man than than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And the, the issue becomes immediately, what does that mean? What is greater love? And we need to fully understand John 15, 13. As usual, it's not what is mostly represented. It's far more complex. That is a very complex verse. We're all familiar with it. We think we understand it. Most of the time, you don't. It's okay. Be very suspicious of your understanding. It's a good place to be. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. What does that really mean? But for now, we were asking the most obvious of the obvious questions. If there is a greater love, and it says there is, identifies it. If there is a greater love, then I also must have what? I have to have the inverse of that. It's just basic math. I have to have a greater hate. So, if greater love is about laying down your life, what is the greater hate? And that's the discussion of Matthew 25, 14, 30, because Christ identifies somebody who has the greater hate. That is the third man in that parable who buries and hides his one portion of gold and silver. And that took us, trying, and God calls him wicked and lazy, and that took us to Proverbs 15:19. The way of the lazy man is like a hedge of thorns. Do you remember that? I hope you do. And but the way of the righteous, the way of the saved. So we know that the contrast is already occurring. I could say it this way: the way of the lost man is like a hedge of thorns. But Christ identifies him as lazy, and lazy again is a spiritual issue, not a physical issue. So the way of the lazy man is like a hedge of thorn, but the way of the saved man, the righteous man, is like a free path or a highway, is what it says. And we ended up last week with the willful knowledge of the lazy man. He is choosing, I made this example, he's choosing to walk through, think of a road, okay, pick a road, any road, 50 feet wide, 60 feet wide, whatever it is, but it is totally and in, in, in completely nothing but thorns. And so there's your road, and you're going to walk through. Think of the thorns, if you will, 20 feet high, 100 feet wide. And you're going to go through those thorns. And next to that, of course, I said, there's this absolutely clear, free, soft dirt path. But no, you say, I'm going to go, I'm going to walk through the thicket of thorns. That's what the Bible says is the definition of lazy. And that's where people get confused. Well, that clearly is, why would you do it? You would think, I used to say this when I was teaching high school and junior high. In order to figure out where the teenage boy was going, all you had to do was find the easiest path. That's the one he'll pick. Not realizing at the time that I was in conflict with Proverbs 15 through 19. God defines lazy as the one who intentionally walks through an unpassable thicket of thorns. 
And he does it willfully. He's doing it on purpose. He knows that it's a thicket of thorns. He knows it's dense. He's doing it purposely, willfully, with intentment. And he knows that everyone who follows him, and that's his plan, isn't it? To get as many to follow him as possible. They're going to likewise be what? By trying to go through this path. You try to walk through this path, and let's go ahead and give it a length. It's a hundred feet wide. It's call it a hundred feet high, if you will, make it easy. And it's a hundred miles long. That's the path the guy has picked, and he's done it on purpose. He wants to do it. He has a whole bunch of people following him, and he knows what's going to happen to everybody, including himself. What's going to happen to you? You try to walk through a, a growth like that that is covered with thorns. You're going to be torn to pieces. And that's what the lazy man wants you to do. He wants you to do it. That's his plan. Let's get as many people as I can to go through this. He wants the followers, his followers, to perish in the thorns. To bleed to death. To be literally shredded, blinded, and doomed, and caught many as we can. So now we're starting to find out who the lazy man that hid his one talent, his one portion of gold. And this is ultimately the no greater hate. The plan of the lazy man, again, not physically lazy. It's not what it means. The plan of the lazy man is to kill. But not just to kill, to ensnare, to trap his victims in such a way that they are unable to move. So the choice. Do you follow those who lead you into everlasting death, the thorns, or do you choose to be free? Which do you pick? And, and that, I can't, I can't illustrate it any better than that. Do you take the trap, or do you go the, to freedom? And the question that results can't be more obvious. Why do so many people, the overwhelming majority of people, choose the thorns? It's overwhelming. It's not even close. If I had to guess the percentages, I'd say 99-1. 99% of everybody alive throughout the history of man, has chosen the thorns. Why? Why do so few choose life? It it seems to make no sense. That's the obvious question. So let's go ahead and reread it a little bit since we have time. I'm doing really well today. I know you don't think so, but I actually am. Let's read this, Proverbs 26, 11 through 16 again. As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness or his folly. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? Find men. Find anyone. But certainly find men. Find a man who thinks that he is wise in his own eyes. Because what have you now found? There is no more hope for a fool than for him. The lazy man says there is a lion in the road. Well, wait a minute. I'm going down a a road that's really just what? Just thorns. But there's a lion in that thorn pile. Really? You have to deal with lion. A fierce lion in the streets, he says. Why Why does the guy that wants you to be torn to pieces and blinded within five feet of going on his road, why does he tell you there's a lion? What's the point of that? As the door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man on his bed. The lazy man buries his head, hand in the bowl. It worries him to bring it back to his mouth. The lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Here's the, here's the underlying principle of that. How do you identify somebody that is killing you? Who wants your destruction? 
he tells you that he's the smartest man you will ever meet. And he can't stop from telling you that. So I've gotten in the habit of asking people, how smart are you? I ask them. And then usually all I have to do is step back. Because I'm going to get it. They're going to tell me how smart they are. Now I go with somebody that I cannot trust. It's a perfect test. It never fails. The one most unqualified to talk to you about theological things can't shut him up. Proverbs 22, uh, 13. There's a lion outside. I will be killed in the street. That's what he says. 15.19 talks about the thorns, right? What is the meaning of this lion? Let's go back to that for a second. Why does the lazy, wicked man say this? Remember, lazy again. Can't repeat it enough. There's a spiritual condition. It is someone who intentionally rejects the spiritual truths of Christ, all the while knowing that they're true. He doesn't just do it because he's confused. He does it because he knows it's true, and he doesn't care. So that is what God calls lazy. So ask the next inevitable question. A lazy man says there's a lion in the street. Let me get it correctly. There's a lion outside. I will be killed in the street. There's a lion in the road. A fierce lion is in the streets. That's what a lazy man says. A man who knows what the truth is, but who hates it. Is the lazy man, is he lying about the lion? Say that three times. Is there a lion? Let me ask you. The lazy man who wants you to go down the path of thorns so that you're blinded, torn to pieces, and shredded, bleed to death with no hope, wants you trapped in thorns and end up choosing death, he tells you, hey, there's a lion up. There's a lion in the streets, and the lion's trying to kill me, he says. What should you think? Is it a lie? What's the answer? Duh. He is lying about the lion. So let's ask some more questions. How is it a lie? Why does his plan to lead people to their deaths through a path of thorns, as described in Scripture, include this complex lie about a lion? And he says the lion is after him. One of my favorite bumper stickers when I was in college was, Help, the paranoids are after me. The paranoids are after me. You'll get it eventually. But I loved it. Tells you how weird I really am and how old I am. Why does this man's plan to lead people to their death include this lie and say in the lie, not only is there a lion, but the lion is there specifically to kill me? Let's ask some more questions. How many streets I got in the typical Israelite town? How many streets? He says there's a lion in the street. In the streets, there's a fierce lion, and it's going to kill me. It's there to kill me. How many streets do I have in the typical city at this time? How big are these cities? Jerusalem had millions of people in it, at least a million. They can tell by the cemeteries. They can tell by the waste removal structures, the garbage. So I got a lot of streets. How many people, how many lions do you think were in the streets? Let's take Jerusalem as an example. How many lions were wandering through the streets of Jerusalem? I got a million people there. What do they all got? Weapons. Would the lion go into the city of Jerusalem? What are the odds? Not there. So why is he doing it? And everybody could see there's no lion. There's no lion. You're lying about the lion. 
I've repeated that joke four times now. You're required when I get to four to laugh. It's a part of your assignment here. Why is the supposed lion after this one guy? The lion has come to get him. Why? And so how do we figure this out? I've got to solve the lie about the lions. Try to figure out what it is so that I can understand the plan of the lazy man. So what do we do? This is where you participate. Those of you who are still awake. What do we do? Well, we do what we always do, Pinky. We uh, go and find the other places in Scripture where I have a man and a lion, right? That's all I got to do. Go get my lion and men Scriptures and then compare them to this lie. And I want to find the place where the lion kills the man. So where do I go first? Come on. Especially if the man is religious. I have a lion that kills a man. Doesn't eat him. And another liar, by the way, comes along to get the man. I also have Samson, right? Samson kills a, a, a lion in, in uh, Judges. The unnamed prophet of God is killed by a lion, 1 Kings 13:26, and that also contains another lying prophet. So I have a lying liar prophet who always lies until the very end of that story in 1 Kings 13:26, and I have Samson killing a lion in Judges. What is it? Judges 13. Let me check. Judges 14. So those are two great places to start. What are lions in Scripture? Why do you think it's happenstance the guy says it's a lion? Why doesn't he say the Romans are trying to kill me? Why doesn't he say anything? No, he picked a lion. Why? How about a bear? How about whatever? Some guy is trying to kill me, but he doesn't. He picks lion. Why? Yeah, lions are very interesting in Scripture. Christ himself is called the Lion of Judah, right? Of course he is. Revelation 5 5. Christ is the Lion of Judah. Rev 5 5. That's Christ. We'll put him over here. And that's a wonderful verse to study. Behold the Lion of Judah, the root of David. Do not weep. Behold. Something very important. Behold. I don't give it justice. Behold. Look. Stop. Don't weep. Christ is the Lion of Judah, Revelation 5.5. He can open the scroll. Every time you see behold, something amazing is happening in your Bible. So slow down. Take your time. But I also have, to keep moving here, I have Satan. is called what? 1 Peter 5.8, right? Make sure, yep. He is the roaring lion who walks about trying to do what? He's looking for somebody to eat. Now, there you go. So, this, so I got two lions. And I got a lie about a lion. What is the lie? I have a lion in Proverbs 26:13. And I know it's a lie, but what is the lie? As the musicians come forward, you should read Bob's letter because he has a great line about what we need to do for the musicians as they come forward. The pomp and circumstance that's required for them to come forward correctly. But I have two lions, so what's the question that you have to go to? Which one is the man saying is trying to kill him? Is he saying Christ is trying to kill him? Or is Satan trying to kill him? Which of the two is trying to kill him? Satan is trying to kill him. Does he know Satan is trying to kill him? Do the people that Satan is trying to kill that are the sons of the seed of the serpent, 
the ones that Satan has a relationship with. Do the ones who are... I'm moving stuff for you on the internet. This is part of my assignments. My responsibility. It's in my job description. Do the one who know that they're lying in order to kill other people, do they know that Satan is trying to kill them? See, that's a very important question. I've thought about it for many, many years. Does the guy who is saying that somebody is trying to kill him actually know who is trying to kill him? If the answer is yes, and I think it is, how does that change this story? So next week, we will figure that out. Let's rise and be dismissed.